So you got sort of signed in like like quite relatively young, didn't you? At Gloria Management. Yes. Yeah. What questions will I be able to ask in that? <laughs> Any, anything you want. So I I, I signed at um, at eighteen with them. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Whatever you want to ask, I'll um, I'll answer within reason. How, how did that sort of happen? And like, what was the? How did you get seen? And like, yeah. How did the process sort of work? Um. So I was heading up to the fringe. I, I was my my third year and I had a show I was really proud of and I knew more about the circuit and was doing a certain level of gigs <clears throat> that I thought, you know, I, I'm happy to send emails to agents and be like, come see me at the fringe. And I think there is a risk if you go too early, then people will see you and go, well, he's not ready. And then it, although they may, you know, that's not the end of it. I don't, I don't, don't view it as uh, the end of the world, but uh, it can take a bit of time for them to come see you again. So I thought, you know, this is the oh I think this is a time I'm happy with so I sent a bunch of emails around basically to several agents inviting me to my fringe show and before the fringe even happened they emailed back and said you know we love your clips and stuff do you want to come meet us so I went and met uh, Lisa who's uh, the head agent um, well uh, my main agent and uh, had a meeting in the cafe and kind of talked all things comedy and what I wanted and what I'd done and where I was heading and uh signed just signed through that so uh it was just off the back of uh, an email and uh, a clip and a cv rather than actually being seen and welcome to another episode of the marvel's world podcast a podcast where we speak to amazing and fascinating people who will make people like you and me make what we love a full-time job if you like the podcast please give it a view on itunes if you don't like it share with everyone you hate <laughs> and in this podcast today we have the awesome andrew white he is a comedian who started from the age of 15 so like whilst most of us are playing world club craft Yu-Gi-Oh, or some online games or just doing this he was getting on stage and making drunk strangers laugh from the age of 15. <laughs> Hello, Andrew. <laughs> Hello. Thank you for that introduction. That's, uh, yes, I don't know how many strangers I came, uh, drunk strangers I came across at that age, but uh, yeah, that's, that's, been, that's been my life for the last six years now. How's it been, Andrew? What's, what's, what's your journey been like? What's been happening? <laughs> it's been good. It was... Um, a slow, a kind of gentle introduction to comedy when I was 15. It was our youth open mic. So it wasn't quite the uh, uh, the bear pit that some some uh, Saturday night comedy clubs can be. I had a bit of a, a freedom to do what I wanted without too much judgment, which, if that makes sense. It wasn't uh, straight into the fire. And then when I, when I was about 16, 17, I started getting properly more onto the actual circuit. And so... That's sort of maybe perhaps prepared you to like create your own sort of style of comedy more. And you think maybe if you hadn't done that, you'd be a bit more squashed in. Yeah, for sure. It's, it was good to, to not have, I, I mean, it was, a, it was a good and bad. It was good to not see any other comedians because uh, you could just create uh, your own thing and you didn't have the influence of the circuit trends. Uh, 
however it would have been nice to have a bit more community and kind of um pointing in the right directions for what gigs to do so uh, a blessing and a curse yeah hmm. and yeah where did you get the i mean so it wasn't as harsh an introduction but still i mean like at 15 where did you get the balls to go and do it <laughs> uh, well I, I did a lot of uh like performing arts anyway from a very young age kind of uh, musical theater and acting and stuff so i it already felt uh if not natural certainly comfortable being on a stage uh, and um then i'm so sorry my uh my phone's just going i'll quickly turn Boys, off. I'll stop it off cool. <laughs> um yeah so i had a um uh an inclination to perform anyway and i'd done stuff on stage from a very young age um but also in terms of specifically moving over into comedy i think i had a lot of teenage arrogance just of like oh, i'm 15 i could do anything i i know everything so um i just jumped on stage and thought i could do it and um well, i don't know whether i could do it but i i couldn't hmm, it wasn't awful uh, it was it was it was good enough and went well enough for me to carry on it's so many comedians i speak to like they 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 like I mean, you're in good company staying at 15. I mean, David Chappelle started when he was 15. <laughs> I didn't know that. That's, that's crazy. It's, it's and so many comics I speak to, they say, like, I wish I'd started earlier. I imagine how good I'd be. But they're going on the flip side. Uh, what's this? Ricky Gervais hmm. says that he started when he was late. And he said, oh, I wish I could have started earlier. But his wife said, you weren't funny then, were you? So it's, what's your sort of thought on that, I think? Yeah, I suppose it's different for everyone. Uh, I think, like, having a certain life experience and a certain uh, outlook and persona on life that's more developed uh, when you're older is certainly a, a good advantage for starting out. Um, however, you know, time is obviously on your side if you start younger. Uh, I, th I think it's less about time and years though as it is quality of time and years so you know some people go yeah one, one or two years and then they sh and they shoot up the ladder because they put in the right work whereas some people have um uh, been doing double triple quadruple that and uh, uh kind of still stuck on on the same the same certain level because they're not uh necessarily doing the right things to progress themselves so uh yes i'm very grateful that i did start early um and uh had the the uh, that arrogance of youth to to try it but at the same time i don't think um it is too um too much of an advantage um if uh, if you can put the time in right whatever at whatever stage of life so you, yeah your your point is that it doesn't matter when or how long you start but you got just got to do it right from mm. the yeah you got to do it the right way yeah yeah i think so and what would be sort of like the right way of doing comedy and like developing your set as and what would be the wrong way? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. Um, again, it's, it's different for everyone, but um, certainly, uh, uh, you know, writing and developing material continually, um, it can be uh, as, as much as it is nice to get a really honed set. Uh, and uh, you know a really tight five minutes or 10 minutes or whatever it is i think you need to keep developing material because that's what's going to keep pushing you forward 
um, because as much as you can improve on premises you've written before, the new premises you write are going to be even st a stronger place to build if you've if you've kept improving. I think um, being a bit selective with gigs as well. Um, some people will just kind of say, you know, gig, 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 just get on stage as much as you can, which is true. But um, if you've got two gigs uh, available to you, one's uh, a well-attended, supportive night that you can, uh, you know, have a bit of fun with and actually develop yourself and one's a, a pub full of five drunk people that don't want to be there and you just kind of have to yell against them obviously uh and i know it's hard to sometimes have that you know you don't always have that luxury to pick but uh, uh i think maybe where i am as well on the southwest there are there are nice nice gigs um that gave me that opportunity uh yeah yeah that's that's one of the things I feel in the southwest, isn't it? There's a, I mean, in London, there's a lot of terrible gigs, but in mm. like in the southwest, from what what I've seen, they seem to be quite nice and supportive and friendly. Mm. Well, especially because there's there's nothing else to do really in lots of these towns and villages. They're they're so well supported because you know it's a proper night out. Whereas you know, there's so much going on in London, it is it can be hard sometimes to create a, a good audience. I realised halfway through saying, "Oh, this is this is how you should do comedy right." I realised I had quite a uh, a charmed um, introduction to comedy, so maybe it's not necessarily the best insight for everyone. But uh, yeah, that's that's been my experience: is is being a bit selective with gigs and continuing to write and work on new stuff uh, no matter what. I mean, look, it's it, everyone has their sort of idea and journey into it. So I think if you spoke to, I think if you spoke to 100 comedians, if I speak to 100 comedians in a podcast, each comedian is going to have a different viewpoint or something. Hmm. Everyone's all started differently. For but, sure, yeah. No, it's, it's, it, I was very interested in what you said about like different stages and like doing it the right way because it is, it, performing arts and like being a comedian it can be very hard like like in terms of seeing your blind spots and getting better and then progressing and all that it's yeah. and it's so competitive it's getting i mean comedy is getting more and more competitive i mean in london like there's so many comedians from america coming in and canada mm. yeah it's it's just going to get tougher as well once once lockdown ends and there's you know a, a much reduced offering of gigs it's just it's just going to be tougher and tougher and it'll probably just be tv names people will say yeah that's the thing is the the kind of it's all shifted down a few rungs in that you know the bigger tv names are willing to do uh, gigs for less because there are no gigs and then all of a sudden that has a knock-on effect for everyone else and what gigs they can get hmm. it, it's it's quite funny as well because like john pendle who's one of the best comedians i've seen stopped doing comedy because of covid hmm. it's yeah it's so sad it's uh I, I don't really know where it's gonna go or or how we're gonna properly recover um i hope john comes back i i really i really love his stuff and uh yeah unfortunately he's, he's not the only one it's been we've lost quite a few uh names already and I don't know. I don't know whether they'll come back. You know, if you get into a job and you get that security of um, working nine to five, it, it can be hard to leave. Yeah, it's. But I mean, on the positive side, Andrew, there could be a lot of, you know, before you're getting a McDonald's Big Mac. Now you're going to get something. You're going to get maybe three or four Big Macs because, like, those that stay stick at it longer, 
during the hard times and when it gets mm. better you'll reap it more and like you you're yeah, that's very true. I suppose I suppose that's another advantage. I know I said earlier, it's like, oh, it doesn't really matter when you start, but there is an advantage to me not having any dependence or, um, I mean, I, you know, I'm, pa- I'm paying rent and bills and stuff, but um, uh, I do I do have a, a bit of a security net with my parents. And yeah, that is an advantage of, of youth that I, I perhaps didn't acknowledge earlier. Hmm. That's true. Yeah. Well, that's that's the thing that I used to do with comedy. I used to do a lot of bad jobs and like I would work, get up early and work really late but since lockdown I decided you know I'd much rather work in creative things and like take time with it mm. rather than go around and do a job I hate and just have my soul destroyed all the time yeah 100% that's um I'm, I think I'm I mean easy to say for me to say this now but I, I like to think in the future I uh uh I do I do what I'd need to do to live and survive obviously but um I still think I'd uh, I'd I'd live humbly to pursue uh, something I loved rather than uh, you know spending a lot of time on on the grind for for just money. And that's the, th- the thing about comedy. It is I've got a bit that I'm trying to work on. Mm. It's like, and you probably agree on this, but comedy is a lot like being a. I'm I'm not taking drugs and I'm not really a drinker, but like comedy is a lot closest thing to being a cocaine addict yeah and it's a bit that i'm trying to work on because it it really is isn't it like you go through so much shit sometimes and then then it takes a while to get that good feeling at the end yeah yeah it really you end up chasing uh your first big laugh and you realize it's it's never going to be the same as your first big laugh because you hadn't experienced that before it's you know yeah yeah that's a good analogy i like that and then you just keep going after it and you, <laughs> you, you, you but you go for the same sort of things like you see comedians that there's some of them are you know they're just terrible and they smell bad because the comedians are in poverty because of it it's because mm. they're chasing a the dream and it's exactly the same thing or musician or anything like yeah. to drugs because you're chasing what you love and what you love doesn't always love you back I think I think yeah I think cocaine is a good drug as well because like it is potentially damaging to your life but uh, if you're rich it's just a hobby. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> uh, hmm. But sometimes even cocaine might be less damaging than doing badly at some gigs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know those moments. I mean, you must have a few moments, Andrew, where you've like done badly at a gig and you're like, oh, why am I doing this? Why am I putting myself through this? And then there's times where it's like on the other side of that. Yeah, I think um, it's hard for me to, uh, I've got this kind of a, a mindset that is very kind of locked into seeing myself doing this in the future. So when it goes badly, it's, it, I, I suppose it's an advantage in terms of it gives me a drive. You know, I, I really am striving for for this kind of, thing that I, I can picture but also when it doesn't go well it's like oh that the entire future I've imagined is all of a sudden in question it's um kind of ups the stakes a bit yeah you do I just try to take it on a on a case-by-case basis I, I think um you know I, if, a, if a gig goes badly as as much as possible I'll just try and be like I, I'd minimize it to oh why did I do that gig rather than why am I doing comedy because I think um 
especially you know that's the that's, a, that's another thing with starting at 15 is this has been uh, <laughs> my life and personality basically you know these formative years where you kind of find out who you are who I have been as is a comedian so if, if I question that bigger question I, I don't know I don't know where it will lead me not not down a, a bright path so I try to avoid it but yeah it's, it's tough it's tough sometimes yeah because I, I spoke to uh, Delaney Fisher uh, do you know of her I've heard the name. I don't think I've come across. She's so she's a former comedian in LA, and she'd been doing it for six years. She'd been on TV, but I spoke to her on a podcast, and she said now she's a sort of a simplicity coach, where she helps mm. people. And she did comedy, and she tried doing acting. But the thing with acting, she wanted to give it a go. But what she did was she spoke to an actor on what it took to be an actor, mm. and realized it wasn't for her. And then. With comedy, she realised it wasn't for her, and then she started making a living from doing dick drawings and cups. Oh right. <laughs> and one of the things I want to look at here, well, <clears throat> I would love to see it like with the performing arts. I'd love to see. I want to give people to provide. I want the people to see an interview. I want everyone who wants to do a performing art. Mm. whether it be singing or whatever see an interview with someone who speaks to someone who's professional in that industry never mind famous in it and yeah. see like how much work they have to put in and then decide whether they want to do it because you get a lot of, I think a lot of us when we're chasing things we we don't we chase it because we like the end result but we don't see how hard it is for the person to get there oh 100% uh, it can be quite frustrating sometimes as well seeing people who are uh, not even necessarily you know bad some some of them are good and have a lot of potential but you can just tell that they don't there's a you can there's a sense that they won't work at it and you can see they're all already at an early stage kind of shirking some of the the graft you have to put in and it's quite frustrating you kind of just want to be like get out now just just leave you're you're blocking up the circuit for everyone else and also you're just going to disappoint yourself in the end but um yeah, I sometimes I thought about people and then I've been proved wrong, but uh, a lot of the time it's it's hard to see people that that aren't willing to work and put in the hours for it. Well, one of the things that I don't like about comedy is the admin side of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, as you could you could probably see from the messages when I asked you to do the podcast, I I, I myself it's like oh, I hate the admin. Like just get it out of the way quickly, bish bosh. But mm. I mean, people don't like that. They want you to put a bit of flour around it, and I hate doing that. Yeah. No, I think um, I think the the straightforward approach is is better. I I prefer that personally anyway. I'd rather just know straight away. Oh, that's what that is. Especially sometimes with gig offers, when people are like, "Are you free on this day?" I'm like, "Well, I don't know if I want to say yes or not. Are you giving me more details?" So I I much preferred your upfront. Here's the thing. Do you want to do it? I, I appreciated that. Okay. Cool. So I need to do a psychoanalysis of each. Yeah, that's the thing. It's uh, it's hard to hard to know about the best way to approach well anything. Admin asking for people gigs is just an individual thing. There isn't really a one size fits all answer. It's true. It's quite funny because some people are cool with it and like they get on with it, and I like that because I want to get on with it. Because this mm. like the admin side of thing is like I don't want to spend as little time on as it possible. Like the time is spent on the actual thing we're doing. Mm. And but other times when I see a bish bosh try and get it done, like they seem to be like f- some seem offended by it or whatever. But it's like I'm trying to, <laughs> but I don't know. It, it, 
And another question I'll ask, so you got sort of signed in like, like quite relatively young, didn't you, at Gloria Management? Yes, yeah. What questions will I be able to ask in that? <laughs> Any, anything you want. So I, I, I signed at, um, at 18 with them, yeah. Uh, yeah, whatever you want to ask, I'll, um, I'll answer within reason. How, how did that sort of happen? And like, what was the, how did you get seen? And like, yeah, how did the process sort of work? Um, so I was heading up to the fringe. I, I was my my third year and I had a show I was really proud of and I knew more about the circuit and was doing a certain level of gigs <coughs> that I thought, you know, I, I'm happy to send emails to agents and be like, come see me at the fringe. And I think there is a risk if you go too early, then people will see you and go, well, he's not ready. And then it, although they may, you know, that's not the end of it. I don't, I don't, don't view it as uh, the end of the world, but uh, it can take a bit of time for them to come see you again. So I thought, Okay, this is the oh I think this is a time I'm happy with so I sent a bunch of emails around basically to several agents inviting me to my fringe show and before the fringe even happened they emailed back and said you know we love your clips and stuff do you want to come meet us so I went and met uh, Lisa who's uh, the head agent um, well uh, my main agent and uh, had a meeting in the cafe and kind of talked all things comedy and what I wanted and what I'd done and where I was heading and uh it was signed signed through that so uh it was just off the back of uh, an email and uh, a clip and a cv rather than actually being seen yeah and I suppose it's even worse suppose when you're sending clips to them because mm. like that that <clears throat> when you're sending clips in your work if they don't like it then that's going to be very hard for them to like if, if I'm a promoter and I see a clip because they've seen the clip it's hard for you to change your opinion on them hmm. yeah you, it's it is it is hard to <laughs> i've certainly done that before as well whenever i've uh booked a gig and i get a clip on it this, this guy's awful and then a year later it's like edinburgh nominated i'm like oh i guess i was wrong uh <laughs> that's not about anyone who's specific i was just thinking of a, a random uh example um yeah it is that was the other thing it, it's not just the uh being the right time to be seen live but also knowing that you had a good enough clip um so i think that's another important thing if i was to impart more advice is to um to get a good clip you probably and to make sure that it's sort of at the right level you did did you get a did you get second other people to look over it rather than you think it was good as well so I feel that we all overestimate ourselves and we have to get that added voice to see it. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 it was a clip that I um, I had sent out to promoters before and also uh, before I'd even sent it to anyone, it went to uh, a group chat of friends who are also comedians. Um, yeah, I, I think it's important to have that network of, of friends who can tell you, yeah, this is good, go ahead. Or, you know, well, maybe just wait for a different clip uh that was useful to have yeah that's do do you travel a lot to like the london circuit and up north for like when when, when before covid hit what was mm. your like date did you become a full-time comedian then did you travel across the country or how did it work yeah um so i took a gap year in 20 uh 18 19 
and um, uh, I, I I just went and did lots of gigs, and uh, there was a variety of trial spots for for clubs and stuff like Glee and Comedia, which were unpaid, obviously, but. I had the time in that gap year to travel and do them. And then a couple of paid stuff from the kind of Southwest circuit. And I just used that year to uh, travel up the country. And then by the time uh, I had to accept or decline my university offer, uh, I, uh, uh, I declined because I had enough, I'd built up enough, um, trying to think what the right word is, enough, Reputations sounds too grand, but you know, I was I was in with enough promoters and clubs that I could uh, I could get by and, and live off it. You're like, yeah, screw this, man. I'm not I'm not bloody studying to be zoology. I'm I'm making people laugh, <laughs> motherfucker. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, that's awesome. It's and and that's quite quickly as well. Like I hear mm. some people they wait. To, they wait years and years before they get like spots at like the stand and other places like that so that's awesome yeah it is um got a lot of luck that's i think uh, that's uh that's probably if i could have if i could say like this is what you need to be a professional comedian or any uh, you know kind of level of um decent comic a lot of luck um which i'm i'm, I'm really grateful to have had and what what level how much does sort of basically having charm and being being likable like being people see like being nice but like knowing how to get on with people and like just what's the word i want to put of it like yeah, yeah being definitely. friendly with people and amicable people in the point mm. where they like you and they help you but also about not letting people walk all over you or nefarious people trying to take advantage yeah it's um it definitely helps and i think having your own group of comedy friends and and a diverse group of comedy friends as well not just like uh, in terms of you know the kind of uh, the diversity that everyone talks about but you know diversity in terms of people from different areas of the circuit and people who move in different circles because if if it's just one group who are always together at the same time it can get quite insular and you don't you don't actually get as, you know at a certain point that becomes more detrimental than helpful to have that support network so um yeah yeah making friends definitely helped uh, and um but at, at the same time i think comedy is probably one of the most forgiving uh industries for people's oddities and uh you know maybe i think lack, lack of social skills sounds a, a bit harsh but but you know what i mean yes. you uh you know there's, we, we accept oddballs and, and weirdos and you don't necessarily have to be um, Mr. Lay on this charm, slick your hair back. You know, if, if you're funny and, and not a dick, you can, you can get ahead. But one thing I found hard about the Edinburgh Fringe, it's quite funny when you're there for months, like everyone you know is up there and there's all these other comedians mm. and like you, the people that you have a regular conversation with, like some of them will ignore you because they're uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. The fringe is—I oh, don't even know. The fringe mindset is completely different. It, it really changes everything, doesn't it? But it's funny though. You got the opportunity to fringe, and like your your people say, "Oh, people don't get this or that in the fringe anymore." You're an example of like taking advantage of what's there and like making mm. the most of it. 
and I remember also I, I, I was in the city calf last year hmm. I was trying to do some notes for my set and then I had uh, Scott Blanks from the New Zealand uh, comedy scene so he sat right next to me with his kids and he gave me his business card and I didn't even know who he was at the time <laughs> yeah it's it's a strange mismatch of, of people you normally talk to avoiding you and people you've never even met before becoming good friends it's uh yeah it's it's almost an entire world of its own away from what what normal real life is i really want to look into like the stories of how it all started and how it grew into what it is now because it really is a beast mm. like you got the best before is i think by far the best festival in the world yeah like you got so many performers from it across the best performers across the world like I'd see comedians that were on the London circuit that would do really well. But then when they're, when they're in the Edinburgh Fringe, their show wouldn't receive anywhere near the response it would get in London. Hmm. And you see so many like creative acts that are doing weird like things that you've never seen before in humanity. And it's like, whoa. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I know about the origins with the, the stories of... Uh, so they had the international festival and then they the some performers weren't allowed to perform in the international festival so they set up their own on the fringes um and i can see how that grows and becomes a bit of a fun cult thing but the step from that to just thousands of performers and millions of audience i yeah it's hard to it's hard to look back and follow how it's blown up so massively but it, it's cool i really love it there's so much there for everyone It'll be cheaper though next year. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, if, if if there even is a next year, that'd be interesting to see. I mean, or the, or it'll be funny to see Edinburgh Fringe online. Mm. Like if they can't put it on, they just put it all online. I hope not. I I think there is a market for online comedy, and some online comedy has been really good, but uh, that's not what the Fringe is. And I think any attempt to to do it in any way that is not the way that it is uh, not that there's not room for innovation and change but you know it has to be live it has to be on the streets of edinburgh otherwise it's it's not the fringe <laughs> yeah it's so many it's gonna be interesting to see what they do because i mean i think comedians they're performing in the hut in the like they're gonna if they're going to do the whole Edinburgh Fringe in the in the parks, mm. in the little tents, because I, I think comedians will do it. There's no mm. problem with that. Oh, yeah, 100%. You're right. Comedians will step up and find ways to perform. But, yeah, it'd be interesting to see if that's actually... If that translates to audience enjoyment and just audience numbers as well, whether people come and watch. And the funny thing about Edinburgh is you, you bump into all the names you see on TV, but it's it's funny seeing someone that's on a TV like walking right next to you, and you're like not too sure what to do. Yeah, it's 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 kind of uh, I was about to say it's a level level playing field. It's not obviously if you have more money and you have more fame, you're going to do better at Edinburgh. But in terms of being in that environment, you are almost kind of level in terms of your. Um, uh, you know, you're you're you're, go, you're doing the same thing. You've both got a show on. You both want it to be a good show, and you both want people to see it. It's uh, it's kind of the one time of year where um, 
you are, you know, everyone's kind of working towards a similar goal, whereas normally they'd be working on a tour show and you'd be trying to get ahead at, uh, at a certain gig, you know, all of a sudden you've all got the same objective. So it's quite nice to have, yeah, have everyone on the same page like that. Have you tried the other fringes, like the Brighton Fringe, the Hastings Fringe and all of them? Yeah. So, I, yeah, I've had mixed experiences. Nothing nothing is ever like Edinburgh, but some of them have been really good uh, performance opportunities. Some, I think, I, I, um, I wouldn't recommend Brighton personally uh, if people say, if people ask me about what fringes and previews to do, Brighton is uh, a beast of of its own um and i, I don't i don't know how to i've not worked out how to tackle it so uh i feel i feel like certainly for speaking to other performers i think the way to tackle it is to have a lot of money to plow into promotions and being in the brochure and uh for me i just don't think it's worth it but the others pretty decent hastings i really enjoyed shaftesbury fringe is always good every year um swindon fringe uh, yeah mixed bagged but what about the Leicester Fringe? Yeah, I um, again, I've had mixed experiences with it. Uh, you know, one show got like seven, eight people in, and you travel all that way for one performance. That's that's the other thing. It's different to Edinburgh. It's obviously Edinburgh. You're there for the whole month. All these other fringes, you're kind of there for a day, maybe two days. So it's harder to build up any momentum or audience. Um, but some Leicester performances I've been to and uh, put on have been really well attended and uh, sold, sold tickets and gone well. It's I, I would I would recommend Leicester, but um, you know don't don't pin all your hopes on it. Don't don't go thinking, oh well I'm going to win a Leicester award and somebody's going to see me here and there. Just just think of it as a, a fun opportunity to go up and uh, I go watch stuff as well while I'm there. Just spend the day watching things. And don't don't spend too much money on promotion because uh, there's a certain point where how much you spend out is uh, you're not going to get any of it back. Oh yeah, it's it's. I mean, you're putting an extra pressure on yourself if you want to win an award or this and that. Mm. And people going in Edinburgh with the first hour, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. But you're ruining the experience for yourself. Yeah, yeah. It's um. It's hard to not imagine it. You know, I think everyone has that, even if it's just a little bit of their brain that goes, yeah, maybe I could. Uh, it, it's, um, I think everyone has that, that fantasy. And especially with Edinburgh, because, you know, the debut is so coveted. It's like, well, it's your first hour. This is your only chance to win this award. Yeah, people get quite obsessed with it. And I, I don't think it's... Um, that healthy yeah it makes it yeah it's it's but i mean it's an amazing festival and i do hope it returns to what it was in some capacity that is definitely mm. never going to be the same no no i agree it's i really like the street performers you see in edinburgh they mm. really bring in something special yeah it's cool isn't it and yeah it's kind of uh, they all come together from all over the world, and they they may maybe one of them at a time will be performing in a certain spot in London. But for every every 
all of the greatest street performers in the world to be in one place it's pretty awesome well funny you say that about the street performers is that in london they perform for 45 minutes or 50 mm. minutes and that, that is a great and same with magicians when they're doing corporate gigs they're doing like 50 minutes mm. but like on, on your side you 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 I mean, when you're doing corporate gigs mm. like the most you're going to get is 20 minutes or like maybe yeah. a bit more as an MC, but you're not going to get more than that are you no no um I, yeah, I suppose they have something extra to keep people's attention, whether it be a magic trick or s- swallowing a chainsaw or, or whatever it is. It's harder to um, maintain somebody's full attention just from speaking. That's one thing I find quite... One thing I've seen as a bit of a fault of some of the comics I see is that it's just all... They just focus on the material, but sometimes they don't adapt to what's in the room. Mm. And they when 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 the room's a bit iffy or people are heckling or when yeah when things don't require when you're telling jokes and they're bombing Mm. there's no change in anything and i see that quite a lot yeah i i know i said earlier you know pick pick supportive gigs rather than drunk men in in pubs who aren't paying attention but also it is important to do those gigs sometimes because you want to you want to be prepared for a variety of um performances uh i think to go into every gig expecting it to be exactly the same and you can just deliver things exactly the same and it'll always go well that's just completely naive yeah you need to be prepared and equipped to handle different situations how do so with you being sort of getting across the country and all these different gigs how do you adjust your set Andrew, like if, if you're dealing with burly men saying, Oh, eh, son, you get off the fucking stage, you fucking do this, or like, or people saying, like, Yo, yo, fam, what did you say? Yeah, how did you handle that? Um, it's it's hard to it's hard to say, really. I kind of you just take it gig by gig. Um, normally, there'll be a foothold of something you can you can get into like well they're all you know focused on this guy so he's the leader of of this pack or you know everyone's noticed this thing so we can we can work with that yeah you kind of break it down to something you can get everyone on or as many people as possible on board with um uh, and get a foothold that way that's normally the the strategy but yeah it really depends on on what's in front of you and what's being said uh, and of course, sometimes there is there is no option. Sometimes the entire crowd is uh, you've lost the entire crowd, and uh, you ca- you can't really carry on. So you just hmm. uh, what I what I do in those situations is I'd pro- I'd stop trying to be funny, uh, or trying to actively be funny. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't discount a joke if I if I thought of it. But you just try and chat to them and get them on board. But that is really last case scenario going out of performance mode and just trying to talk to them as humans that's that's when it's really gone to 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 shit <laughs> so i was trying to think of a, a, a different word that uh, to avoid swearing but i couldn't oh it's fine the podcast you swear as much as you want cool thank you <laughs> it's, it's, with with the edinburgh fringe that mm. i hear that do you adjust your set slightly when you're doing a show based on the day? Um, 
Yeah. Uh, not not because of a specific day or a specific time, though. It will be because of the audience. Like some audiences, I suppose it does. It is the day as well. You know, Friday, Saturday, they're going to be a bit more buzzy and up for it, and you can kind of go high energy and a bit sillier with it. Um, but sometimes you look at the crowd, especially on some midweek shows, and it, it is more of a theatre audience, and you think, well, you know, they're maybe not going to laugh as much. And if I come out really high energy, I'm going to look like a nutter. So you just start slower and talk to them a bit more gently. And hopefully you can ramp up the energy and get them all on board. But yeah, I, I think again, like like with expecting every gig to go the same, expecting every fringe show to go the same and t- tackling it in the same way is uh, either admirable um, or stupid. <laughs> D- depends on how well it, well it goes, I suppose. <laughs> And what's your sort of day-to-day routine for like preparing a set, but also like, um, yeah, just for what's your day-to-day routine when you're developing material hmm. or before you go to a gig? How do you get yourself prepared? Um, that's changed. That changed and that has changed a lot and still changes quite a lot in that um, f- there was a period where I'd write out every single set and every kind of beat of the set and look at it loads before the gig. And then kind of recently I've not been preparing any sets, just kind of going up and thinking, well, I know, you know, I know my material and uh, I've got enough to fall back on if I do forget it. Uh, so I, it, I've, I've changed it up a bit, but um, generally I will plan it out mentally and write down any things that are newer or um, different from from what my normal set is so if i think well i want to definitely include that joke or i'm going to this place and i know i have a thing about this place i'd write that stuff down because that's not necessarily in the muscle memory but um in terms of the the stuff i do quite regularly in clubs and clubs and pubs uh i just go up there and trust that it's there although i do sometimes forget What's what's the most brutal heckle you've had? Because I, I get the feeling that you've had the story of someone really brutally went for you, and you put them in their place. Um, uh, no, not I've I've not really had any awful heckle stories. I think the worst heckles are the ones where people try and like join in and add to it because they're trying to be nice, and you you can't just be like shut up, you're an idiot because everyone would be like, oh, he's just trying to help you. So it's hard to deal with those ones more than it is people who are just being rude because you can just go back to them and go, well, you're this and that or whatever. Although I try to avoid kind of just plain insults, I try and deal with the actual heckle. Uh, In terms of the worst story, though, I I did a working men's club in Weymouth and uh, people were just really not liking me and... um, just kind of just kept making undercutting comments but there was nothing I could do other than fulfill my time because the whole audience uh, did not want me so that was the worst stuff I don't I don't have a, a zinger story I'm afraid <laughs> that is that is quite hard that's quite sort of because you weren't too sure what to do were you you were just like do I get off do I do this what do I do yeah well uh for that, because it was a private event and, you know, it was uh, a paid, agreed contract thing, I thought, there's no way I can 
I can't give them any opportunity to fight not paying me. Uh, and I'm not walking away without money after having to experience these awful people. Um, they, they weren't all awful, but the ones that were nice, were they were nice because they were timid and because they were timid, they wouldn't stop the mean people. Um, I sound like a child discussed being bullied. They wouldn't stop the mean people. Um, but that is how it felt. They, they were all just kind of either disinterested or interested in the wrong way, as in they were trying to make me look bad. What brought it about? What what made them be like, right, I'm going to write this and I don't like this bloke. I want to destroy Andrew. <laughs> um, a booking error, I think. Um, uh, I know I know it's wrong to blame the audience or the person, but it, it wasn't. The audience were not, they weren't my audience. Uh, they were uh, a lot, they were kind of very traditional working men's club crowd. I think they would have preferred um, a Bernard Manning style one-liners or even for me to come out and, and be rude to specific people and be like, oh, look at Dave's haircut. He looks like an idiot. And they, um, which I can, I can do, you know, I've, I've done kind of combative uh, environments like army gigs and made that work. But uh, this was just, it was too much. They did, they, they wouldn't have, uh, and, you know, there were other factors that didn't work. Like there was a big dance floor and the microphone was a bit dodgy. And, you know, it was too many things to overcome, basically. Ah, uh, yeah. Because I, I, I heard a funny story from Ivor Dembina mm. where they couldn't hear him and they couldn't heckle. So what they did was they got the... So they got a Roland Street Cube mic and he would go and do jokes to each table. <laughs> like, da 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 <laughs> that's funny that's um that's good that's that's ingenious i would like to see how um a crowd like that would deal like a mad act so like not a mad act god that doesn't sound right like, like a, alternative some, kind of yeah yeah so do you know someone like stephen catling or someone like uh candy mm. gg or oh, tina yeah, yeah. turner T lady yes yeah yeah, I um. Well, I don't know. I I I uh I don't know how how or if they'd adapt their act at all, but yeah, I think if if they if they do it as they did it or do it in you know clubs and the environments that they do do it, I think um. I'm trying. So I'm uh, I'm trying. I've got I'm really mixed up with my tenses and. Uh, <laughs> I started kind of back myself into a corner linguistically. Uh, but yeah, I, I have no idea how they would react. I, I like I like to think because they're they're good performers, they'd they'll they deal with it, uh, even if it's just to a certain extent they'd deal with it. But uh, yeah, the audience weren't open-minded for something different. Yeah, it would good like because there's such forces of nature and they're so boom, it just mm. beats interest and see how sort of hello there love what you're doing now you're going and just yeah. to see her go what it, I, if anything I, I it might it might even have gone the entirely the other way if it was someone like that you know they might have been so captivated by seeing something different that they they would have been more forgiving and polite i think maybe maybe i was too middle of the road either they wanted super traditional bernard manning or super off the wall but i was neither <laughs> 
And that leads to an interesting point as well. How, what, to what point do you adjust your act and do you just accept that you are what you are and that you can't change it? Because like Sam Russell, he there's many good comedians that make great careers and go on TV, but they're a certain thing, but they don't adjust their act to different scenarios. Mm -hmm. And he says that he just he's got lots of different bits which he uses for certain different audiences so that he gets booked for different places. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I, I um I can do like emceeing and traditional club gigs and kind of rowdy pub stuff, but also more slightly more um left field fringe things. I, I do like to have that adaptability, not not just for professional reasons. Obviously it is nice to have those opportunities, but I think just creatively it is important for me to to diversify and try out different things. And, you know, doing that, I've discovered stuff that uh, I maybe wouldn't have uh, bothered exploring otherwise. And that, that become mainstays of my act just because I want to try as many different things as possible. Um, so I, I'm happy to adapt and, and do different things. Uh, but <laughs> as much as you adapt and as much as you try different things, some some crowds just can't be pleased. Yeah, there's no pleasing some people. Yeah. It's like we've. Have you seen The Sopranos? No, I've not actually. Oh, there's. Oh, it's great. There's a bit, this bit where uh, Phil Leotardo, uh, he's from the New York family. How do I shorten this? <laughs> okay, he he. They tried appeasement with with this guy who. A bit. Actually, no, a good example of that would be Hitler and Clement Attlee. All right. Mm -hmm. Like he, Attlee tried to appease Hitler by let, because of the, the Germans were untreated unfairly during the war. They gave him bits of land that were part of Germany, really. Mm -hmm. But he went too far that way and Hitler got carried away. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, yeah, there's only a certain point you can go before you're, like, you're, you're destroying yourself and then it's not good either way yeah exactly yeah i um yeah that's that, that's the other thing as well if um i think that's sometimes a symptom of doing the same gigs over and over if you're always doing the same type of gig you learn how to do those gig well those gigs well but you uh you, you block yourself into a a corner appeasing a crowd that isn't necessarily your crowd it's one thing i want to sort of ask you about and these mm -hmm. are the last three questions mm -hmm. what life advice would you give to your younger self mm -hmm. and what is a quote you like to live your life by oh that is um good question i think i would tell my younger self to uh ignore other people's opinions or to at least say say to him that uh, a lot of opinions you imagine people don't care uh, so, not not that you know if somebody has input or uh, uh, you know uh, something to say on a matter not to ignore that but when you kind of act thinking how will other people receive this what will other people's opinions of this be and to ignore all of that because um, either they'll scroll yeah if for example if it's a, a video i want to film for facebook either they'll scroll past it and not care or they'll like it 
or they won't like it and you'll never know and it doesn't matter it doesn't even if they don't like it, it doesn't matter just just ignore all of that a very long winded way to to say uh ignore um ignore the haters basically <laughs> uh I, I think taylor swift said it much more concisely than me haters gonna hate 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 so you like to live your life by the quote of um if you care too much about what people think you'll always be their prisoner yeah that's a very good quote that is a very good quote okay and what yeah do you have anything you like to plug um yeah uh, i'm i'm running a, a game show every monday um called screen time which is just a fun live stream on youtube and facebook and twitch and that's mondays at eight o'clock um on my facebook which is andrew white comedy although i tweet all the details as well which is at stand up andrew and my instagram is also at stand up andrew and then the, the only other thing is there is a weekly online comedy gig called Gigless, which is hosted by the wonderful Catherine Bohart. Um, we, we, we kind of co-created it and built it up over the last few weeks. And I'm not normally performing. I'm more kind of doing the tech and running the Zoom and stuff. But ah. I still love it so much. And uh, I'd really be uh, delighted if people go check out Gigless every Thursday. Right. So guys, whoever's listening out there when I publish this, go to Gigglers. Thank you. Andrew White and and Catherine Bohart. Mm -hmm. I've been Marvin McCarthy. Now I'm sounding like a game show host. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's thank I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Uh, best of luck with everything. They got the vaccine ready. So mm. within a few within a few months, hopefully we're back gigging and kicking comedy in a dick yeah i hope so thank you so much thank you for having me take care my friend au revoir au revoir thank you so much let's do it so that's been andrew white i hope he's taught you a lot about what it takes to go from a young teenager playing minecraft i don't know if he did but i hope it's changed informed you of what it what needs to be done if you want to get signed that's been andrew white i mean it's quite remarkable that he's he started comedy at 15 he got signed when he was effectively 18 just a young pup just goes to show whatever it is out there go out there and make things happen and at the end of the day, I also want to say this. If you like the podcast, please give it a review on iTunes. If you hate it, share it with your enemies. And I'll see you at the next episode. <laughs>